0: This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association
1: for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of July 17, 2017, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 438 of Defender Radio. West Coast bears like their fish. I don't think we really need science to tell us that. But which bears eat what, how much salmon they're eating, where they're getting it from, what influence that has on ecosystems around them, even at great distances from the coast, and how that could all impact management across geopolitical lines, now that's what science is good at. Megan Adams, PhD candidate at the University of Victoria, research scholar with the Hakai Institute, and biologist with the Raincoast Conservation Foundation, recently published a study examining the data associated with some of these questions. Her study included samples from over 1,400 grizzly and black bears across 690,000 square kilometers of British Columbia from 1995 to 2014. Adams worked with the of Nation as well, adding the importance of traditional knowledge to her research and conclusions. Megan joined Defender Radio to discuss her recently published paper, why salmon and bear populations should be managed together, the influencer time with the week in the nation has imparted on her work, and what animal lovers and environmentalists need to know to protect the salmon-bear relationship and all that it represents in British Columbia. We're talking about uh, your study, uh, Intra-Population Diversity and Isotopic Niche Over Landscape, Spatial Patterns and form conserv- Conservation of Bear Salmon Systems, um, I, I love the way you scientists title things. Uh, <laughs> uh, this was in the Ecological Society of America's Ecosphere journal, um, and I guess to start out, why don't we talk about maybe what your hypothesis was as as you sat down to to begin this large project? Uh, what questions were you asking?
0: Mm-hmm. We know that the bear salmon interaction. Happens across huge, sort of, spatial scales, huge landscapes in British Columbia because we know salmon migrate far inland. But we also have observed that bears in the interior of the province obviously have a really different dietary makeup than bears on the coast. And so we really wanted to know to what extent bears in the interior ate salmon compared to the coast. I work on the coast where bears are very fishy. And you know, some of their some bears that we study have over 60% salmon in their total annual diet. These bears are made of fish. And you can see that reflected in how healthy they are. That has sort of direct health benefits um, for those individuals and for the, the sort of overall health of those coastal populations. So we were really curious to see how far that predator prey system actually went into the interior and to what extent it went into the interior.
1: And, and what were the, the general findings uh, that, that came as a result of asking these questions?
0: We found overall that um, males eat far more f- salmon than females and that grizzlies eat far more salmon than black bears. And that was known already, but what we were able to do was map that um, in a really nuanced way where we were able to see hot spots, sort of areas that were fishier than other areas for bears. And when I say fishier, I mean they had more fish in their diet. So um, on the coast, we saw an, this incredible dense hot spot, especially for male grizzlies, in the, in the area known as the Great Bear Rainforest, which is excellent because that sort of conservation area was delineated in part by this predator-prey system. So it was kind of a way of saying, check, that area is working well for those bears getting that fish. But then what surprised us beyond that, especially for male grizzlies, were these really high hotspots, almost almost as high as the coast in terms of percentage of fish in their diet, far into the interior, you know, a thousand kilometers up the Fraser River, near Quinault Lake, or in the interior of the the Nass Valley? Um, and so these salmon that go so far are really bringing with them that those same ecological connections that happen that happen on the coast. And for listeners who aren't in British Columbia. Um, who, are, who, don't, who don't know about the sort of magic of this system. The bear is like the conduit of this incredible pulse of energy that comes from the ocean in the form of a salmon. So you've got all these marine nutrients that that salmon has been accruing for the years it's spent in the open ocean. It's full of protein, it's full of fat, it's got all these, you know, good qualities to it, and it comes up the river, and the river's like a conveyor belt for all of this nutrients, and then the bears fish it and spread it throughout the forest. And then all the secondary consumers that interact with the guts of the fish or the scat of the bear get to be fertilized if they're plants or subsidized if they're animals. So it's really this sort of amazing cascade, and we were really inspired by how much those interior bears were still helping create that sort of salmon Fertilization cascade.
1: Yeah, it's it's remarkable to see how far in it goes. Um, and you know, looking at the maps you've developed, there are some that show the uh, the very, as you say, nuanced. I think um, distribution. Um, and then you've got the the sort of larger map that shows just how far in um, <laughs> it goes, and it, it's up against the border of Alberta. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, how I. How do the fish get that far? Let's start there. Because <laughs> that seems very surprising that they can get in so far inland.
0: Yes. Yeah, so that, the farthest hotspot spot that you can see that's up against the Alberta border is at the long end of the migration of sockeye through the Fraser watershed. And that river is it's undammed. And it is quite developed. I mean, Vancouver is built on the estuary of the Fraser River, but it it has been left intact as much as it can be. I'm loath to say intact, but compared to the other great salmon-bearing rivers that once existed in North America, the Fraser stands strong. And so that in itself is enough to facilitate the fish making their way, but... I mean, that's the million dollar question, how do fish know how to get so so far and travel so far? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not a I'm not a migratory salmon biologist, so I can't answer that question. But they have deep and old mechanisms for how their behavior changes once they transition from the ocean and into the into the river that have evolved for you know, a very long time, and that facilitates them putting all their energy into just migrating to their spawning reach, the same spawning reach that they often hatched from. They have incredible homing mechanisms.
1: Uh, you can go ahead and just make up a reason. Uh, that's that's kind of <laughs> how we roll on this podcast.
0: <laughs> well, fish just know where to go. All right. They're born with it. And that's what they do. Uh,
1: that sounds like that uh, Maybelline ad. Maybe they're born with it.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. Maybe they're born Ooh. with it. <laughs> What's, I, well, I don't know. I don't know when to, if it's okay for me to interject or not like I am right now. But <laughs> <laughs> the, the, on that map, there's all these areas against the Alberta border that have no fish in the bear's diet. Mm-hmm. And those are in the in the southwestern part of the province. Those areas interest me just as much as the ne- areas to the north that do still have fish because those southern areas those grizzlies should be lit up and full of salmon because that's at the headwaters of the Columbia river. And that was once a mighty salmon river. sock I used to go all the way to radium hot springs, which is the edge of Kootenai national park. Um, you know, only a couple hundred kilometers from Banff. Yeah. But that river is so heavily dammed. There's no way any of the consumers, the bears, the eagles, the people there, um, will likely access salmon again. And so for me, the, these maps of the salmon bear system are really interesting because they highlight these areas that are sitting quiet now as much as they do the ones that are still sort of pulsing.
1: Well, what's the impact of that? I mean, can we have, you know, and I guess this is one of your other million dollar questions. Can we have a healthy ecosystem where this this vital food source uh, is no longer able to, to, uh, to get to, to traverse?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm there are still bears and there are still eagles that live in those places, but they evolved with that that annual pulse of, of nutrients from the salmon and so I I'm sure in the in the sort of early 1900s as the Columbia was getting dammed, they had really had to adjust and adapt. Life gets a lot harder and those animals necessarily get more stressed um, when food is less accessible. And so that's sort of one of the takeaways for us from, from this work is that these areas that bears are still accessing salmon, we really need to think about how human development may or may not be impacting those places and really try to leave those sort of vulnerable and precious places on the rivers free of development, um, free of sort of, yeah, future, future development of oil and gas transportation, free of, um, Industrial development, habitat fragmentation, because those areas that that predator prey system are still intact, end up benefiting the whole ecosystem around, not just the bears.
1: Well, and that is uh, one of the subjects that you have discussed, and I've read. Uh, I think the smog did a wonderful article uh, mm. uh, with you on this subject, and it's looking at the the relationship. Then uh, is is rather I don't want to say obvious, but it's it's there between the the bear and salmon um, but the management of those two are done separately. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly what and I, I get it feels kind of like an obvious thing, but it, it probably is a lot more nuanced. What is the implication of having terrestrial mammals? Uh, and ecosystems managed separately from the very resource that provides the sustenance and provides the, as as you say, that sort of pulse of energy into the ecosystem.
0: Mm -hmm. I think it really sort of demonstrates the lack of nuance Western management systems have. You know, we've organized ourselves very, very well, in quotation marks, um, to... (laughs) To be managing resources, but it's not it's not cookie cutter, it's not Lego resource management. things are really complicated. and so and yet we're also seeing um, a sort of lack of capacity in in both provincial and federal governments in terms of funding that people are receiving and the scale of programs of resource management. We're seeing this sort of vacuum of of governance. They have less and less funds and less people on the ground. And so we can't, what am I trying to say? What are the implications of that? Well, you know, you you said it's obvious. These things are necessarily connected, and yet salmon are managed federally out in the open ocean. Bears are managed by sort of uh, regions within the province, by provincial managers. Federal fisheries managers have a mandate to account for the health of the ecosystem before they account for commercial fishery, but they're not necessarily connected to the pr- provincial managers um, or the even the communities upriver that rely on fish. And so while our work can't give them <laughs> clear answers, we hope that it can sort of inspire those connections and have people start asking, okay, there's obviously consumers that live up these rivers a long way from here. What do we need to do to make sure they get enough fish too? Because these systems are, are so connected and the, Oh, sorry. Well, so I work with some indigenous resource managers on the coast who, while their capacity is also limited, are open to sort of these interconnections. So the nation I work with says, okay, we want to know about the bears in our territory, the density of their population, We're really curious about how much fish they eat. We're really curious about how that affects how many fish we take because we want to make sure we're taking care of the bears as much as we're taking care of ourselves. And that to me is a vision of what resource management could look like.
1: It's a very holistic approach in that sense. Um, And that's whole as in entirely, not as in made Mm up. Um, Yeah, it's a dangerous term these days. Sure. Uh, especially with you science folks. Um, <laughs> well, and that's something I actually wanted to talk with you about. Uh, this, this is something that at Raincoast, um, uh, there is a, a heavy involvement um, between um, the uh, scientists like yourself, uh, your you're, uh, PhD candidates uh, mm-hmm. with University of Victoria, and you're working with traditional knowledge, um, and, and, tradi- and and I don't know if you call it traditional science or not, um, mm. but it's it's that mm. like, like traditional. It's the right word. <laughs> it's the the way they have always looked at uh, uh, ecosystems and and the interconnectedness of things. Uh, and I see in in your uh, listing of studies uh, publications that you've done some. Uh, you've had conversations about the Mm. relationship between the indigenous community and academia. Um, Mm -hmm. What, I I guess before maybe we get into the bear aspect of this, what influence has that had just that exposure Hmm. on your work as a a PhD candidate and, you know, an ecologist slash biologist to be.
0: Mm, That's a a great question. And I'm glad you asked it because yeah, we're as academics, we're, sort of taught that our way of asking questions and our way of knowing the sort of cloud of our knowledge system is the only way to go about doing things. And in Western culture, there's a couple power currencies. One of them is money and one of them is knowledge of the law. And another one is the ability to generate and to interpret information data and you know, those, those these are, yeah, very important power currencies in Western culture. And here in British Columbia, it's only been colonized for the last two hundred years. So these are really, really fresh knowledge systems that are being imposed on a land where people have functional knowledge systems that have worked for, in the case of the territory I work in, fourteen thousand years. Yeah. So to be exposed to a different way of knowing and a different way of asking questions has been extremely important and humbling for me just in examining the, own, the, the knowledge system that I work with. Um, and I think, I hope, it, it helps us ask better questions. I mean, I, I don't do this because it serves me. I do this because it interests me in what it means to be a citizen of this country now at this time. I think this is how we need to move forward. With people who never signed their land away, with people who, whose land I am a guest on, this feels like a, a useful way to share space. Um, and so, I always think about these knowledge systems um, being sort of on the same on the same level. We use a lot of Venn diagrams in our in our papers um, that we wrote with our indigenous colleagues, where we say, "Okay, we've got these two knowledge systems." different ways of knowing, different ways of asking questions, but we've got an overlap in what we're interested in. We've got you know, we have capacity we can share. So it's like these two circles overlap and that's where the sort of the common objectives are. And we might have different methods, we might have different capacity to bring to the table. You know, I can write code that interprets the <laughs> the dietary data and the guys I work with have an intimate knowledge of the weather systems that lets us collect data together in a safe way in the first place. And so the sort of coming together and standing beside one another of those two knowledge systems is where we at Raincoast really try to sit in our work, where we understand that science is one of many ways of asking, one of many ways of getting the job done. And instead of imposing our objectives directly over top of that of our colleagues, but instead saying, okay, where do we overlap? Where do we not? What's the productive space in there? I think we generate really interesting hypotheses together and we get to tick a lot of boxes for one another. We basically build capacity in each other and it's very productive and it's very humbling and rewarding. And I can't imagine doing science any other way because it's so much bigger than that now
1: for me. And what's interesting to me in my, uh, you know, my background is journalism, not science. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I speak with a number of people like yourself who are studying interactions and uh,
0: populations
1: mm-hmm. and so on. And I find frequently that there is, when science tries to dictate, <laughs> it it gets ugly um, because yeah. the people... On the land, whether they're ranchers, whether they're indigenous peoples, um, have a different perspective. Totally. The interesting part about it, though, is that both sides need to come together. Um, And I don't know who starts that process. I I can't Hmm. explain that. But I do know when I've looked at studies, uh, for example, in Idaho, there was a great one by um, Defenders of Wildlife uh, that they led. In association with USDA and a large body of ranchers. And mm-hmm. they came up with brilliant results on coexistence with wolves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you see similar attempts without that buy-in from the community, yeah. the science gets a lot more stilted. Uh The, totally. the ability to, to, to bob and weave along with the data isn't there so yeah. but I also think you know the way you, you've explained this is is very much what can make Canada a wonderful place um yeah. not not just for indigenous people but for all people
0: for all of us is yes, yeah. that we
1: we find common ground between us and build each other up
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know it's it's a wonderful it, it it's a wonderful combination of social sciences and biology and uh academia mm-hmm. and tradition it's 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 great to mm-hmm. see happening, uh, and hopefully wow. it will lead to a historic change uh, between uh, cultures. Uh, yeah. And as you said, on the ground, this is something I find interesting. I've, I've spoken a couple of times with um, Douglas uh, Nislas of the Heltsuk First Nation. Um, oh,
0: he's Kittesu, Hey hey <laughs> not Heltzook.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Um, that's okay. <laughs> I, I, that's the one I remembered how to say. Uh, to be oh, honest, you so,
0: did great. Thank you. Yeah.
1: That's, <laughs> I can say one of them right. Um, I'm proud of that. It's like when I lived yeah. uh, outside of Quebec for a while, I learned how to say Quebec properly. So, Ooh. Yeah. Uh, very yeah. pleased with myself. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's it's very interesting talking about how the traditional knowledge that they are they are raised with in in the the indigenous culture. Can benefit science in that day to day, and for you, one of the things I found very interesting in, and, and I'm going to quickly try and see if I can find this again in in the study, mm. uh, in your I think in your methods section, uh, mm. but you in getting your data together, um, you know, you had some uh, historic data that you were able to pull. You were using um, hair samples, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, as yeah. opposed to to darting and drawing blood. Absolutely,
0: yeah, totally. <laughs> um,
1: one of the things I found interesting was that uh, there it is. Agreements for this these data with partner governments prohibit us from displaying sample locations. Um, is that in part because of the intimacy of the knowledge of where the bears are?
0: Hmm. Exactly. Yes. Yes. It's. It's to prevent, yeah, it's to prevent um, sort of inspiration for hunters in areas that are open to um, to the the hunt in British Columbia of grizzlies from knowing where mm-hmm. we're doing our research because we politely ask the bears to come give us their hair samples by leaving a fermented fish sauce all over the forest floor <laughs> that has no caloric reward it doesn't condition them or anything it's just a liquid bait um but you can imagine we're at you know we're baiting bears into these sites up and down the coast and we're often picking places that are of particular interest to the nation where the nation that we're collaborating with so we raincoast collaborates with Five different nations. I work with one of those, the Oikono Nation. And often the places we select for studying bears are of cultural importance or management importance, or they're just an area really dense for bears. And those nations do not want people from away who come in with their guns to know where those places are. Similarly, some of the samples I used from the provincial data set Are from what they call compulsory inspections, whereby when a hunter takes a grizzly, they have to submit a hair sample to the province. So we don't want people to know where bears have already been shot, because maybe those are areas that are easy to access, et cetera, et cetera. I think a lot of that local knowledge is contained in local hunters on the ground, but certainly it's not information we want to spread any farther. So for, for both the Indigenous governments and the provincial government that we collaborated with, it was a priority to to not show those sample locations.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's uh, one of those considerations you don't think about until you see it written down like that. Oh. And it kind of jumps out at you that that is a, a very real risk of sharing some of this data. Yes. Um, uh, now, uh, pure curiosity as an aside, uh, you said from away. <laughs> that is a very Newfoundland centric term.
0: <laughs> well, also a coastal term. Over right. here somehow.
1: Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very interesting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it's also a wonderful musical.
0: <laughs> I've never uh, seen it, but I will track sh- it down.
1: <laughs> it is about uh, the community of Gander, Newfoundland, on mm-hmm. September eleventh, two thousand one. Because uh. all of the flights were redirected there. Oh, uh, as it's an international-sized airport that no one goes to, right? And yes. um, they, uh, the community, just opened their homes hmm. to thousands of strangers that oh. day.
0: I can uh, imagine. So oh. <laughs> a
1: wonderful play. Cool.
0: Um, hmm.
1: Back to bears and salmon, though. Yes. <laughs> What's next? I mean, that's you know, I find that often the most curious part uh, of these these endeavors is you've you've got a very clear argument here that we need to be managing bears and fish or terrestrial and marine ecosystems more uh, in a more connected way mm-hmm. um, and that the traditional knowledge of the indigenous people the first nations of coastal BC have invaluable information to share with this so you've got these spheres uh, of information and as you were talking about Venn diagrams what's in the middle of it what's mm-hmm. What is the connection that is going to tie all this together? And you know I, I one would hope improve the lives of uh, uh, the people who rely on bears through ecotourism, of the mm. lives of the bears themselves, and mm-hmm. uh, all of the 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 incredible range of plants and animal life that depends on the health of these bears. Yeah. So from
0: a scientific perspective, for me, what's next is trying to take this percentage of fish in a bear's annual diet that we have and come up with a conservative estimate, my the best guess we can make of how many pieces of fish that actually translates into for a bear. Okay. given Given all these bears and all the fish they eat, you know, Across individuals, we can start mo- trying to ask questions um, with models. Okay, what does that actually mean in terms of the take, the catch of bears for fish? Um, because the nation I work with wants to start accounting for upstream consumers in a really quantitative way. So at a really small scale, that's what's next for me. What we'll learn from that, I, I'm inspired to think of how that can scale up um for other fisheries, other river systems, and you know how can we develop a tool that's useful for managers regardless of which government they work for, um, at which spatial scale. Um, in terms of conservation, what's next is identifying which areas, especially in the interior of the province, um, still have access to fish, but may be vulnerable to expanding human development um, oil and gas expansion, or maybe vulnerable to um, other other stressors like the hunt, um, and say, okay, what can we do for this system in terms of protecting this habitat and protecting these populations where this predator prey system still exists? So there's sort of the the quantitative science that we're going to continue to just improve and keep asking questions. How can we make this information useful for managers? we also already know how important fish are for bears. And so another next step for me is saying, okay, given what we know about fish and bears in the interior, let's find the most vulnerable places, which means the intersection of fish and development. <laughs> it's like a, what are mm-hmm. the pinch points? And what can we, what can we do? What conversations can we have with managers in those regions to protect those places?
1: Well, and I think something uh, that's worthy of note as well uh, is the relationship between the quality of diet to the grizzly bear directly impacts the uh, potential conflict and that's your colleague uh, Kyle Artel mm-hmm. who I, I believe is a, a co-author on this one uh, absolutely uh, has has looked into and I, I would imagine that your work will play into that in many ways yes <laughs> um, you know and as you said that's not your your realm of expertise but I, I imagine that the more we know about how many fish the bears are consuming and, and when and where, et cetera, can maybe help us prepare for conflict resolution, uh, particularly non-lethal conflict resolution for, you know, mm-hmm. if we know that the fish has dropped below a certain threshold, that means they may be looking for other food sources and therefore we can better prepare for it in certain regions.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. and, and for people who want to, to help, I mean, this, this is often a question that I think is more easy in mm. the, in terms of advocacy, but mm-hmm. it also matters in terms of, of science. And I think in particular, the kind of science that Raincoast does, uh, uh, you know for for people like me living in in an urban area of, of eastern Ontario Eastern Canada to you guys, yeah. uh, central Canada to everyone here. yeah <laughs> um, and Western Canada to everyone at east. Um, the most important part, let's just call it that, uh, Southern Ontario, the part that matters. <laughs> um, so for us, you know it, it feels so far away. What sure. can we do to to really kind of maybe get behind some of this to help support this research and the the important r- relationships that you're developing as well as the ramifications of this increased knowledge base?
0: Hmm. I think it's great to start with conversations. Share this work with your friends. Raincoast Raincoast.org has a, a great website where all this work can be shared in a really easy way. We really are committed here to taking our science from those long scientific titles and those papers and trying to put it into <laughs> useful language um, for people who don't speak science. So I'd start there because these these types of research that's that 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 start to call on holistic management and that you know highlight interconnections across water and land, etc., and between scientists and local people. Those can be inspiring for managers and scientists everywhere, anywhere. Um, and so I think that's a first step to, to bring the sort of intent of this work back to wherever, um, you happen to be. On a, on a local scale, um, Raincoast and Coastal First Nations are in a campaign right now to um, protect as much bear habitat as they can on the coast from pressures of the international trophy hunt. And so we've got a campaign right now called save the great bears where we're working together with those nations to acquire um, hunting tenures in the great bear rainforest where they're co-owned and co-managed um, by Raincoast and coastal first nations to just reduce pressure on bears um and so that's sort of a direct thing that's going on that's going on right now
1: to read the paper or learn more about megan's research visit raincoast.org that's it for this week folks i want to thank megan for sharing her time with our show as well as her work to combine first nations traditional knowledge with modern science both in her research and in the bigger picture of our society I do encourage everyone to take the time to learn more about this essential and at times beautiful relationship that is often documented in the work of rainforest Conservation. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.